Fresh Art International presents conversations about creativity in the 21st century. Good morning. This is Fresh Art International. I'm Kathy Bird. We're live streaming from Jolt Radio in Miami, Florida. And today we're introducing some of the creative people behind Miami's next film festival that's coming up this week. And this is the Miami Film Festival. You may have been listening when we brought on the Borscht Corporation uh, earlier this year and, and celebrated their great success with their 10th festival. And last week, two weeks ago, I was at the Caribbean Film Festival, the Third Horizon Festival, and the Miami Film Festival actually sponsored one of the screenings I attended. So it's a world of great synergy and energy around film, and I'm thrilled to be adding the Miami film culture to the subjects that we talk about on Fresh Art International. Today in the studio, I have Diana Cadavid and Joshua Jean-Baptiste. We'll also be having Angel Manuel Soto, a filmmaker based in L.A., calling in from there about halfway through the show. But first, just so that she can give us some history of the festival, I'll introduce properly Diana Cadavid. She's the Associate Director of Film Program and Industry for the Miami Film Festival, but she also has time, uh, professional experience with the International Film Festivals in Panama and Toronto. She is a filmmaker herself. She's produced and edited short films and so she has this film history that informs her work with the festival, which is great. Just to let you know, we'll be talking with Joshua a little later on. He's an actor and a screenwriter, a Miami native, and a graduate of the New World School for the Arts, and he has a BFA in acting. Yeah. Later today, we're going to be talking about <laughs> what made him become a screenwriter, and that's kind of a cool story in itself. But first, let's talk about the history of the festival, Diana. Mm -hmm. It's a Miami-Dade College enterprise. It's, yes. Uh, so we're part of the Miami-Dade College, and uh, the festival has been running for 35 years. Uh, as many of you may know, the festival happens in March, but for the past four years, I believe, um, GEMS... Um, you know, came to life. So GEMS is um, our uh, fall version of the Miami Film Festival. It's a smaller festival. We, instead of the 140 plus films that we present in, in March, this is a festival that it's um, more intimate. Uh, we show around 14 films. And uh, what we want to achieve with this festival is to bring to uh, Miami and Florida audiences for the first time uh, the films that are making a huge buzz uh, leading towards the award season. Uh, so uh, as part of the lineup, we have films that have gotten uh, extremely good um, reviews and have been received great uh, in some of the most international film festivals that happened right before us. I think mm -hmm. this is so cool because my advocacy for the culture of Miami is that it's not just once a year that something happens big for any of our cultural events. There's a year-round energy given to promoting and cultivating a cultural community here, and I think it's super important. Today's show will feature a lot of film projects that have to do with Florida 
or made there, inspired by Florida, which I thought would be an interesting thing to talk about. And also a couple uh, near the end of the show, a couple of films that are either created by, that are both created by artists. Our first experience with this festival, this fall festival, was last Thursday last night. Thursday night, yeah. Wow, <laughs> it seems so long ago. Yeah. <laughs> This was the screening, a preview of The Florida Project with filmmaker Sean Baker there and some of the cast. What was your first reaction to that film? I oh, thought it was Amazing, real. yeah. I thought it was super real, honest, yeah. and really visceral. Yeah, I think it's important to share that The Florida Project was the original name that Walt Disney gave to Disney World. The idea uh-huh. of uh-huh. creating a Disneyland in Florida was the Florida Project. So that's a really important fact to know about what takes place in this film. The filmmaker, Sean Baker, has been known for breaking through different genres right from the start. He started with Greg the Bunny, that whole thing. I was watching those, and it was so wild. Have you watched any of those? I haven't seen that one. No. <laughs> it's crazy. Puppets and people. You know, okay. but but the breakaway success was Tangerine that he filmed on his iPhone, mm. yeah. and nobody could believe it. It did so many awards, got so many awards, and this one, the Florida Project. Maybe we can tell him a tiny bit of the story, Diana. Uh, yes, for sure. Like, um, oh, this is such a moving film, no? And um, so the story of the film is about a mother and her daughter. And uh, they, um, it's hard to describe, no? <laughs> it's about... Because it's about the kid more than it is. Like, it's about a girl being brought up um, in, you know, like, as, as you said, you know, like in Orlando. Um, in a kind of, in an Orlando that is not the Orlando that we see on every film. And it's not the image that people outside of the, of the state have of what's the kind of life that people have in a place like Orlando so it's very revealing of like of life that happens in different ways for many different people depending on your circumstances I would say that's aptly put <laughs> yeah yeah I, I think the perspective of keeping it um on the child kind of shows that a lot of dark things that happen you know children <laughs> find a way to make it bright yeah. that's right yeah the important thing to note also, besides the title, is that this all takes place in the Magic Castle Inn, mm-hmm. which is actually the home to a number of people that can't afford a home or can't afford a rent. They're living in one room of these of this inn, and this inn is just emblematic of a number of places around the U.S. and probably around the world. I think you're right. I think one of the most important, like the main um, uh, issue dealt with in the film is housing and the problem of housing that it's so uh, spread over in North America and that it's not talk about, um, it's like it's not common to see films or art that's dealing with that issue. With the shortage of affordable housing, yeah. I guess is the, mm-hmm. the point here. Mm-hmm. So let's listen to the audio track, and then we'll, I'll share some field recording that I took with Sean and the cast the night of this preview. Thanks for calling the Magic Castle, Amber. Mm. Yeah. 
sure do. $38.90. Okay, I warned you. One drip and you're out. Oh, come on! Out now. It's gonna melt outside. It's melting inside, too. But, Bobby... Out. Thank you very much. You're not welcome! The man who lives in here gets arrested a lot. These are the rooms we're not supposed to go in. But let's go anyway. Could you give us some change, please? The doctor said we have asthma and we gotta eat ice cream yeah. right away. Here you go. Hey, Lee, we got a situation here. Open up. It's only second week of the summer and there's already been a dead fish in the pool. We're trying to get it back alive. Water balloons thrown at tourists. Boobies! Boobies! I failed as a mother, Moni. You yeah, Mom, <laughs> you're a disgrace. New job? Yeah. If you're working, who's looking after Moni? You're not my father! I don't want to be your you father. You can't treat me like this. You don't think everybody knows what's up, Haley? Everybody. She's about to cry. I can always tell when adults are about to cry. Why is my mom yelling? I'm just talking. They gotta figure something out. At the previous screening, the director was there with some of the cast, and they went up on stage to answer questions. And I just thought the best thing, I was hoping to talk to Sean by myself, but he was so super booked that I decided what I'd love to share is that feeling of being there the night of the preview. That would be even better. So you will hear a couple of questions asked, and one of them is mine. This is Christopher Rivera, and Miss Brooklyn Prince. Tell us about casting this movie and uh, how that went. Well, we like to use several different methods of casting, conventional, unconventional. you know, we used the Hollywood agencies to bring people like Willem on board. Willem Dafoe, by the way, says hello. He was not unable to attend tonight, but he's in France playing Van Gogh. He started off, yes, he started a new film. Um, and then uh, we had an amazing um, local casting company in Orlando called Crowdshot. And they, um, they along, Patty Wiley there did a lot of the street casting and then also had uh, a wonderful database um, uh, for children, and that's where we got Brooklyn Prince from. Um, and and uh, Brooklyn came in and auditioned for us. They also had a casting call out to a, several uh, counties asking for children to come on in and audition. Didn't matter if you needed any, I mean, didn't matter if they had experience or not. Um, and Mr. Christopher Rivera came that way, and 
uh, audition at the same time as, uh, as Brooklyn and really just blew us away. Within seconds, we knew these two were going to be cast. Uh, there's a street casting element, and that's when uh, you know either Patty was out actually looking for people um, in the community, or I was just uh, wandering around Target, and this is where Valeria comes from. <laughs> I saw Valeria in Target, walking with her mother, Eve, over there, and, um, and I said, uh, we're holding auditions. Please have your daughter come in. And, uh, there, there we go. <laughs> she was five, going on six, which uh, which wow. which uh, caused us to have to. Uh, we it, it um, actually affected the amount of hours that we could work with her per day, and but it was worth it. It was worth it. Um, so and then we have Mella Murder, who was um, actually in a, a beautiful short film that I saw. It's on Vimeo, and you can check it out. It's called Gang, and she's amazing in it. And um, and Bria. Bria is uh, probably the craziest part of the casting. Um, I found her on Instagram. <laughs> it can happen. Yes. Um, uh, I, you know, uh, we were we were considering, you know, uh, no names, A-listers for this role, but um, Bria truly captured my attention, and I could not stop going back to her Instagram page, saying, "But you know what? I know she can do it. I know there's something fresh." There's something, she's already putting herself out there, um, and, and she had a wit, and she was making me laugh with her Instagram videos, and so we had her come down to uh, Orlando and read with the, the two girls that we had already cast, and it all worked out. All three children, obviously, are so incredibly talented. I, I, I uh, Brooklyn, I'll talk specifically about uh, her audition. I, I always said to Chris and to my producers, you know, we're not gonna move forward with production and unless we have the present day Spanky McFarlane. You know, Little Rascals, I'm very influenced and inspired by the Little Rascals, and I consider him one of the best child actors of all time. And, and in comes Brooklyn, and she matched, she matched his, his wit and his cuteness and his, uh, and, and everything, you know, and, and there you go. <laughs> and um, also, I do encourage improvisation on set, and all three kids were just able to improvise, hold their own with Willem Dafoe, if we had to. Of course, they were wonderful at re, uh, memorizing all the scripted lines. Uh, they were all professionals, but, uh, but the fact that uh, they could also comedically improvise, that was, that was what we were looking for, sometimes for them to loosen it up. And um, let's see what else about uh, uh, Brooklyn also. I, I feel that Brooklyn is honestly uh, in the same camp as like that Mickey Rooney, Jodie Foster. She was born to do this. She had already, she came experienced. I'll let her talk in a second, but really good. Uh, she, she had done commercials and uh, an independent. So when she came in and, um, oh, by the way, um, we had a, uh, an acting coach on the film by the name of Samantha Kwan, who is over here. And she, she worked very closely with the children for the few weeks leading up to production and then all through production. And, um, and I really think that you know uh, she got the kids to a place where they were understanding character, they were understanding their scenes uh, just as competently as, as a seasoned actor would. And so let me, let me actually turn it over to Brooklyn and let her talk about a little bit about the experience. Yeah, I have. <laughs> um, well, when I was a little girl, I grew up doing commercials, so um, I did two very, very small parts in movies, but like this was the big one for me. Aww. Great answer. Great answer. 
great. Could you talk about um, the chemistry that you developed with Brooklyn? Like, how, how, how did you guys bond and, and make that relationship so believable? Um, well, from the first second I met Brooklyn, me and her just really got along. And um, it, we didn't have to try. She was just so open to being my friend and playing with me. We did classes for like two weeks, and I feel like we really got to know each other. And by the time we started filming, she really felt like my daughter. So. Yeah. Amazing job, both of you. It's incredible. I just wanted to talk to Sean. This is a movie that shows a part of America that we don't see in films, and what uh, motivated you to make this kind of film. Yes, thank you for that question. That's the sort of questions we're, we're hoping to get with these so we can talk about the message of the film and talk to audiences um, about, uh, well, for example, I did, not, I did not know about the issue of the hidden homeless in the United States. It wasn't until my co-screenwriter brought it to my attention. He was sending me news articles um, regarding the, this, uh, the Kissimmee in Orlando um, and the, this juxtaposition uh, of children living in these motels right outside of the happiest place on earth for children. And we saw it as a, an opportunity for us to, to first off, well, as I said before, make a sort of a Little Rascals type of movie. If you think about what Little Rascals are, they, 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 there's comic shorts that were set against the Great Depression. These kids were actually, you know, the characters in the Little Rascals were, were living in poverty, but it wasn't the focus. The focus was what made childhood universal, what, you know, the, the humor and the heart and, and resilience and the innocence of, child, of, of children. And, and, and we wanted to put a human face on, on this issue. I think that, that that was our goal, too. We, we, we thought through an entertainment vehicle that we could reach a greater audience. And, and through, through comedy, through us laughing with these kids, enjoying the summer with them, um, my hope is that audiences will, will be entertained and then at the end go home and think about through entertainment, connect with the characters, and at the end of the night, go home and think about the real Moonies and the real Haley's. Um, and we're trying to emphasize that this is not just a an Orlando Kissimmee problem. This is a national problem, and it might actually be happening right under your nose. I certainly did not know about it. Um, it is happening in Boston, Chicago, New Jersey, San Bernardino, the OC, and um, and look into your own community and perhaps what you can do to help in your own community. I mean, there are agencies that we worked with, the Community Hope Center along Route 192 in Kissimmee that is directly uh, um, providing social services uh, to, the, to the homeless families in that area. And of course, you can find out more information about them by going to hope192.com. But we're also trying to tell people um, through these interviews, through these Q&As, that this, this is a nationwide issue. And, and uh, what it comes down to is that affordable housing is a must, and we need the federal government and state governments uh, to really step up. And no more cuts, we need funding. We need funding. It's the only way that, uh, you know, this is really the only way that uh, local governments, agencies can, 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 help, can help the people who need help. Good morning. This is Kathy Bird on Fresh Art International. We're speaking to you live from joltradio.org. And we have a call-in today from L.A. with Angel Manuel Soto. Good That's morning. Correct. Good morning. Good. Uh, good morning. How are you? Great. I was reading about your project. I know. Uh, want to give a little bio on you. You were born in Santurce, Puerto Rico. 
And yep. you've made numerous short films, um, among them The Privacy of My Home that has screened at the festival, and you yep. have The Farm uh, in 2015. <laughs> that was your feature screenwriting debut. Yeah, it was my first uh, my first feature length film, and also my first uh, feature film script, uh, which also played last year, uh, the year, the thirty third edition of the Miami International Film Festival. That's right. Well, I'm yeah. I'm uh, curious what you have a special experience that people can enjoy during the festival without going in to see a film. Uh, there's a project called the VR Escape that's a 360 video experience at the Tower Theater in Miami, in Little Havana. So tell us what what motivated you to create, to venture into VR? Um, well, I'll say about three years ago, uh, I found myself trying to find different ways to tell stories and push the boundaries of storytelling a little bit using the technology that's rapidly evolving. Uh, with, you know, the democratization of film and now people having uh, the ability to actually even shoot a film on an iPhone like Sean Baker did with Tangerine. Uh, it felt like, you know, the, the, the boundaries were definitely fading away. I was just trying to look up different venues to tell stories, and I, during the Sundance, uh, I think to 2015 or 2014, uh, I started seeing people experimenting with 360 video, and it just caught my attention. I decided just to start venturing. So out of curiosity, I found myself making uh, all these documentaries and showing them to you at the Tower Theater. That's right. Well, I'm I'm really interested because a lot of people think of VR as some game element or some something entertaining, and you are dealing with really serious subjects. They're all emotional. They're all to do with crisis or situations where uh, communities are struggling. And I think that's really interesting that you chose that as your subject matter. Uh, well, yeah, you, you're totally right. Um, for me, at, at the first glance, even before I started thinking of the possibilities of what you can do with VR and storytelling, I also saw VR as this, you know, uh, marketing gag just for people to consume and be lost in the world so that they can't face the reality of the world that's around you. But I started seeing the possibilities of taking the medium and exploring what it would be like to try to take people places that they've never been before. And not just for the thrill of teleportation, so to speak, but more for the, the, the opportunity to create uh, compassion through the same empathic elements that we use on cinema and books and storytelling. Uh, there's something about the sense of presence that VR allows the viewer that makes the experience more visceral. So coming from a very a heavily influenced social uh, justice background, I found that the best way to expose some of my concerns 
with the world and some of my uh, criticism with society uh, could actually come across in a more impactful way through the medium of the art. Well, two of the pieces you made that I think would really relate to current experiences in the south of Florida, the coast of Texas, Louisiana, the Caribbean, Mm -hmm. and your own home country uh, was one called After the Storm to talks about the devastation of Hurricane Matthew to a community that not a lot of people got to see exactly what happened there. Totally. No, that that experience was actually very particular because we did that in partner with Google for a project called The Turnaround, which pretty much required us to do uh, a 48-hour turnaround piece, a news piece cycle uh, of events that happened around the world. And right after we were premiering uh, the farm in Puerto Rico, uh, Hurricane Matthew had, had already hit. And we got the call of, like, listen, we should go to Haiti, cover what's going on there, and also the relief efforts. So, it, it, you know, living in Puerto Rico, an island that has suffered through hurricanes for its entire creation, um, seeing what happened during Hurricane Matthew got some perspective and sort of a foreshadowing of what can happen uh, when, you know, uh, atmospheric catastrophe, global warming, climate change, uh, and a vulnerable infrastructure uh, could cause to a country, much like Puerto Rico and the rest of the Caribbean, have suffered also other enduring um, weakening of infrastructure, but more in a social manner through colonialism. So it's like right. you can see how all of those things take place and they just build a uh, the perfect scenario for a storm like in this case Maria and with Florida uh, Irma, you can see how, and you know, with uh, in Houston, you can see how how everything can actually everything that you hold dear or safe can crumble down pretty quickly. Right. The other piece you created that we'll be experiencing is about Puerto Rico's debt crisis. And that seems so timely as a conversation and the feeling of Puerto Ricans not being supported by the United States has really come into play in what happened after the hurricane. So talk to me about that piece. We're going to play a little excerpt from there after uh, you have to go. But this idea of the debt crisis is its own kind of storm. Yeah, I mean, this is a this this will be a very long conversation. But if we wanna dumb uh, down a little bit, you know, colonialism has pretty much been the foundation in which Puerto Rico has been built, and it's a broken foundation. It's a master-slave relationship, and you, as we all know, it's never been the best way to nourish a country or a relationship for that matter. So coming from 500 years of colonialism with Spain and now uh, over a little bit over 117 years of colonialism under under the United States, uh, Puerto Rico has pretty much been a, a, a laboratory for a, any type of experiments to be done, not just 
scientific experiments, but also uh, power experiments. So there's been the new thing going on, which has led to the debt crisis, has pretty much been an experimentation on how to use Puerto Rico as a tax haven and a freebie, you know, for people with power to exploit a lot of the benefits, quote-unquote, that the government in Puerto Rico has allowed uh, a lot of the big conglomerates and Wall Street to take advantage of. So all of that just led to the whole uh, logic behind a lot of uh, neoliberalistic ideas of lending unnecessary amounts of money uh, with high interest rate to a person, in this case, a country or an island colony, who you knew firsthand they had no capacity of paying back that debt. So it only keeps piling up, creating uh, the perfect scenario for a storm like Maria to pass. And a lot of these companies, let's call them, you know, vulture funds, uh, can actually capitalize on the fact that federal government and federal aid needs, need to respond on the property that they have already lost. So, you know, even though it's always been a lose-lose situation for Puerto Rico, even in an esoterical way, it's been a win-win situation for the people who are banking on Puerto Rico's misery. Well, tell me what you hope people take away from experiencing your VR escape. It doesn't sound like maybe as much as an escape as a, <laughs> as a, as a not confrontation. What's the word? It, it, reality it, it check. A reality check. It Josh. is a reality check. You know, um, I think we need more of that stuff nowadays. Yeah, I appreciate and I enjoy the fantasy and the entertainment aspect of VR. And definitely you can escape into these wonderful worlds and, you know, and forget that, you know, we, we, we don't live in a perfect environment. But, you know, uh, in the case of Puerto Rico, uh, sadly, sadly, you know, we've been known for a lot of our talents, but we, people never talk about Puerto Rico the way people are talking about it now. And it sucks to admit that it has to do Thanks to all the catastrophe that's going on, people can actually pay attention and go like, wow, a colony is still happening? Like, is this a real thing? It just starts a conversation, and it starts paying attention. And I think a lot of that, when people come together, we've seen how things can change for the positive. We, we see, you know, there's a, there's a, there, there is a spark of hope in humanity when they come together and realize that something is not right. So one of the things that I really try to do with pieces like that and that I, that I try to do with Riot in that matter um, is try to shine a light, not just on, on crisis and, and countries in turmoil, but also be a megaphone for the people who can't be unheard. And right now, through all the noise and everything that's going on in the media, so much as liberal and conservative media, uh, the things that matter needs to be expressed, they need to be shown, and people need to talk about it. Even if they don't make sense, even if people are, you know, if, even if what they say is it, not at all uh, what could be happening, at least people are talking about it. And it just opens the door and takes the way for truth to come out. So it, it won't come as a surprise now when people start talking about all the situations. So if we can shine a light and people can start to take action on the matters at hand, 
uh, I think we're doing something. And, you know, if we don't, if we can't change the world this way, at least we can stop and prevent from it ending soon. That's excellent. I hope I hope you're right. And I hope that many will take advantage of the opportunity to go to the mezzanine level at the Tower uh, Theater in Little Havana to experience the VR escape with you. Thank you for calling in, Angel. Thank you for having me on your show. Appreciate it. Okay, take care. Ciao. Now we are going to play a little of the noise from the VR escape intercept piece about Puerto Rico. Así que lo que está sucediendo aquí es que se están encontrando eh, dos visiones del Puerto Rico eh, que debemos construir. Una visión que no ha funcionado y que nos ha traído a la miseria y a la represión y a la explotación y una visión de futuro eh, liberadora, autogestionaria. I hope that encouraged you to go experience uh, VR at this film festival this week. Can you tell us, Diana, what the hours will be in which people could go and enjoy the VR experience? Yeah, uh, absolutely. So basically, um, I, I don't know like if people imagine how a VR exhibit is, but uh, so in the mezzanine level of the Tower Theater, uh, you can just walk in and we are going to have four headsets where you can experience the four different projects. So in the creatorial process of like bring, you know, like coming together with the idea of showing uh, Angel's pieces, uh, you know, like we researched a lot of what film festivals are showing in terms in terms of VR. And we decided to go for um, how can we uh, show pieces that are connected by the creative input of a, of a filmmaker, you know? Uh, so basically, yes, you just come into the mezzanine and you can go through uh, all the different headsets and uh, it's an individual, but at the same time, a collective experience. It's very unique, you know, like because you, you know, you put the headset on and you're somehow like completely immersed in this experience and uh, you can go from project to project doing this. And uh, the hours are, uh, so starting on Thursday, our festival is Thursday, uh, it starts at 6 p.m. and it goes all the way till midnight. Uh, on Friday, same thing, starts at 6 p.m. and it goes until the end of the last screening that we have. And on Saturday, it starts at 2 p.m. And uh, Sunday also starts at 2 p.m. So basically it's an opportunity. If you don't have the time to come and watch a film, you can still come. Each piece is around about five minutes long. So you can come and just walk through the pieces and have the experience of, you know, like engaging with these projects without having to sit through, you know, like an entire screening. Excellent. Speaking of screenings, though, we have... So many great films. I wish I could go and just live at the Tower this week and watch everyone. Tell our listeners why why film festival? What makes a difference to see the film in the context of a festival versus just going to see one or looking one up on Netflix, just finding one at home? Obviously, for me, the big screen is really important to a lot of our experience with film. But what what's another reason to 
join a film festival experience? Oh yeah, film festivals are the best. And I think you mentioned something like, or you brought up a word that I think summarizes like what film festivals do. And it's like the synergy, you know, like the kind of energy that is built around uh, all the people that are attending the festival. So uh, in one like in this case in a weekend you know like from Thursday to Sunday you are in a space with the filmmakers who've made these films possible the producers uh the cast uh film critics you know journalists uh audience members and everybody is talking and breathing and discussing these films. So it's a, a great opportunity to get, you know, like the feeling of uh, why is the film industry so important? Why is the art of film uh, such an important and, and you know, like one of, like, probably the most democratic of all art forms? And film festivals are a great time to experience that precisely because of that, you know, just because you are really close, like you can you can really hear and 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 go through the experiences of the different members of the industry that make all this possible. That's right. And that's what happened with the Florida project. We got to meet the people behind that film. What a trip that was. It was just so awesome. And we have a screenwriter in the room who's going to share one of the experiences or introduce us to what might be experienced during the festival during a conversation with the director Jay LaPlante. Yeah. Joshua. How you doing? <laughs> I'm fine. Let me give you a proper intro. Okay. I introduced him before as a Miami native and graduate of the New World School of the Arts and that school turns out some filmmakers. Oh yeah. Hashtag New World wow. Mafia for sure. It's amazing. Yeah. You have a BFA in acting, mm -hmm. but something happened that inspired you to start actually screenwriting instead of just acting out what other people yeah. thought should be a story. I, well, I'm really excited to be here, and uh, it's nice to talk about creating. It's, it's my favorite thing to talk about. Uh, yeah, I graduated college, and I was fortunate enough to have two gigs back to back, which was awesome. And uh, it wasn't until the end of my second contract where I realized, oh yeah, you gotta kind of keep auditioning and you gotta cut, you gotta keep making it happen. So I, I, I wouldn't say I hit a brick wall, but I saw a brick wall in a distance, and I was <laughs> fortunate enough to one day see a really bad play, and I found out that there was a, the play was funded by a grant, and I was infuriated. <laughs> because I was like, this person created this show and he basically got away with murder. And I was like, well, if he could do something bad, well, I can do something good. And I, it really lit a fire under my butt and I got an opportunity to, to have my first ever play funded. And I had no idea what I was doing. They were asking me about budgets. I was like, what are you talking about? Uh, but I kind of stumbled myself through the process and ended up connecting with some really, really great actors. Uh, you know, a lot of the people that I work with closely, you know, have been from that first project. And uh, it was a it was a master class in how to make it happen. And uh, especially when I didn't even go to school for writing, I always thought writing was like homework. So, you know, uh, and then I got a chance to produce another show there. And then just, you know, the concept of just, I have an idea and I can see it in front of me and also pay actors, which was awesome. As an actor, I really appreciate getting a check um, and it was it was a great opportunity for me to just 
find ways to just make ideas happen. And that really gave me an infrastructure on how to produce something. You have a creative collaborator yes. that you're working with yes. these days. Edson Jean is my partner in crime. Uh, we have been creating from the beginning. Uh, he and I are kind of like a, I guess, a left and right brain uh, aspect of, of creating, you know, and we work really well in tandem. He's, you know, a lot of logistics. He knows how to kind of figure it out. I'm like more ethereal and like, oh, let's, let's talk about theme. And, you know, we, but we both, you know, blend in, in a lot of areas, but we definitely have our, our, our dichotomy that I think has really worked for us over the years, yeah. And you have this one idea that we can't mention the name of. Ooh. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Uh, <laughs> that, that somehow you two got involved in presenting your idea to Project Greenlight. Yeah, uh, Project Greenlight, uh, if nobody knows, it was a, a show that was on HBO a while ago, and uh, you know it, it, it stopped airing, but the brand Project Greenlight became an organization where they found uh, filmmakers and people that have never had opportunities to produce things and to give them that opportunity. So I had an idea, or I didn't have an idea. I, I lived many experiences when I first moved out of college and uh, the identity of me uh, being a man kind of came, came up. And, you know, there's growing pains of being, of manhood and uh, of growing up in general, of adulthood period. But, you know, I found myself in situations in regards to dating that were rather comical. And Edson was kind of like, dude, you need to start writing these ideas down and uh, I was like ah but he was dead serious and we started forming these stories and started building stories around uh, you know the idea of African-American men and growing up without fathers and growing up and trying to figure out how to be a man without a quote-unquote male figure raising up and Project Greenlight gave us an opportunity to develop that idea um, we're still in the works of trying to figure it out we have great exciting things that are coming up in the future um, but, you know, we've been fortunate enough to really connect with people that, you know, in the industry that are like gung-ho about producing authentic stories. And we feel as Haitian-Americans, African-American men, or not African-American, Haitian-American men, um, you know, that there's a lot of stories that we shared and a lot of stories that we think will be universal to a lot of people. And what's behind this green light business is there's money to yes, produce yes. what you want to do? We, yes, we, we, we were fortunate enough to have some funding. Um, doesn't cover all expenses, but you know we, we're definitely in a, in a position right now where we can see our idea start as a snowball and go down. And we're really, really excited to push it down the hill. Um, that's what we're working on at the moment. And uh, you know we, we're primarily excited to produce work in Miami. And I think you know with festivals like GEMS and the Miami International Film Festival in general, it's it's a great opportunity to, I guess, reassert, you know, Miami's creative foothold in the city, you know, and, and, and it's, it's awesome that, you know, not only it's once a year, it's twice a year, and, you know, and all the festivals has events throughout the year. So it's, it's great to see Miami kind of linking up and locking arms in that field. Um, I feel like it's a big playground of creators and just running around, you know. Absolutely. So this conversation you'll have during the festival that people can join in We'll kind of give a little more of the skinny behind the process you went through to yeah, to, to get where you are now. And, and, and so, yeah, creating in a city that some would say is not necessarily has the infrastructure to make happy, you know, as compared to like New York or L.A., you know. Um, I think a lot of people have this misconception about Miami, but we have had to figure it out. And 
I think people don't grant themselves an opportunity to just figure it out. You know, um, it, it's hard. <laughs> there's, there's, you know, it's very difficult. But I think that it's worth it in the end to really, you know, in, in, I, primarily what I, I'll be expressing at the talk is how, you know, you, you, you can, there's levels of like intake and output, you know, and, and people tend to, once things get difficult, they think they can't do it. But it's like, no, if you're not getting anything right now, then get better at what you're doing. And that's what Edson and I experienced. We did a lot of projects that we treated like, you know, world-class productions off of $10. And, but we treated it that way. And slowly by slowly, as funding grew and grew and grew, and we got better and we were better, we always had that industry standard from the beginning. And this is kids running around with a camera in the middle of downtown Miami, you know, like <laughs> making it happen, you know? I was going to ask you, can you share what neighborhoods are reflected in this he, well, series that you're we're, developing? We're, we're looking at the authentic Miami. And I think that one thing that we feel like there is a deficit of in the industry is the true Miami. It's not all South Beach. I don't own a Bentley. I have never been on a yacht. You know, there's many things that I feel like that's out there in the mainstream media that they see of Miami. And they don't know that there is Little Havana or the Wynwoods or the Little Hades or the El Portales or these little places that are rich in culture. And I think that's really important to put out there. You know, movies like Florida Project show a really specific thing. And, you know, I, I think that's going to be, in, that's in nouveau right now, authenticity. And it's a great thing to be popular. Absolutely. Yeah. That sounds amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I've, speaking of authenticity. Yeah. Our next conversation. Thank you so much Thank you. Yeah. Thank for sharing you. as much as you could. I, 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 yes. And I, that means we're having Joshua and his cohort back on the show to I talk about you. their film. So I can we mention you. that the talk is uh, on Saturday? Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. Saturday. So you can come on Saturdays at 1 p.m. there at the Tower Theater. Yeah, let's talk art, Miami. Let's, yeah. let's, let's talk about it. Let's, Get over there. Let's... Let's exchange ideas. I mean, all the Borscht people, all your friends from the School of the Arts, they yeah, should all be yeah. hanging up with a lot of hanging homies. in with you. Shout out to New World. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Well, speaking of authenticity, the next film we're going to be sharing is the film called Life and Nothing More. And it was filmed in Tallahassee by a Spanish-born filmmaker. And I recorded a conversation with him on Skype but to set the mood, let's listen to the audio track from the film, and then that will give you some backdrop for our conversation. You meant to be made. I know you want some money. All black and tight. I'm gun man. You feel me? <laughs> <laughs> What do you want? If you make a mistake, don't run from God. 
What do you want, Andrew? You don't want nothing. I'm here. I'm here for you. You need to get your shit together. What do you really think about me? Be honest. I think that you just may be a genuine man, but there's a part of me that also think that you're full of shit and that you're here for two months trying to get what you can. No. I'm saying that you take heed to that because you can lose your life just like this. You know what I'm saying? And when you lose your life, ain't no coming back. Once you gone, ain't no coming back. That was the trailer from Life and Nothing More that was directed by Antonio Mendes Esparza. He's a professor at the University of Florida and teaches film. He was born in Madrid, and his last feature was Aki Iaya that won numerous international awards. Life and Nothing More is his second feature. I called him on Skype to get more of the story behind this film, so have a listen. Barza, it's so great to meet you, and especially a pleasure because I noticed that I'm speaking with a Guggenheim fellow. <laughs> well, thank you so much. The pleasure is mine. Thank you so much for you know interviewing us uh, before the premiere of the film in Miami. Yes, you're bringing to Miami life and nothing more? Yes, that's correct. And this is your second film? Yes, 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 yes. It... Uh, it's uh, I, I I like to think of this film as a sort of uh, miracle in a way that uh, it was even a gift. You know, I I um I I don't think I want to say I had given up on making films because I don't think you did, but I was living perhaps a particularly difficult time. Not particularly difficult time. Many there were many wonderful things in my life, but in terms of making a film, it seemed that it was you know it was I was drifting away from possibility and um, and um, without much uh, pressure and just trying to little by little see if a film was possible we were able to make this film and now I am very happy and you know, uh, very I don't know, it was a beautiful experience to make the movie and now I'm just grateful for all the uh, you know attention and, and, and everything that's happening with it and the Guggenheim Foundation supports uh, your work on this film that you situate in the town where you live. That is that is correct. Yes, the Guggenheim uh, Foundation um, uh, was was very important at the time when we were developing the film, and and, and, and you know it gave us even uh, you know more belief in the project. And, and yes, I, I made the film in, in in Tallahassee, which is where I live and where I work. I teach at uh, Florida State University, and. Uh, um, of course, it's a, it's a, I work here, but it's a wonderful program and very much dedicated to production. So I even work with a, a good number of students. And it was it was like a very small production team, um, but uh, and that gave us time and flexibility to be able to to shoot the film as as I, as I think we had to. 
So it must be very exciting for the students from the film school to be working with a filmmaker on a film that is making the circuit of the festivals. Yes, I mean, I think they are all very happy now. I think, well, you know, while making any movie, it's, 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 there, are, there are good times and there are bad times. You know, making a film is, is, is sort of hard, it's grinding, it's, it's, very, it's a beautiful experience, but also very demanding. So I think uh, everyone now is very happy. Not everyone, not all of them have seen it, but uh, actually, you know, we, we just played the movie in Toronto and San Sebastian, and a good number of our crew was there in both uh, screenings, and, uh, and they were all, you know, very proud and very happy. I'm sure that it's a thrill to have such an outcome. What is the story you're telling in the film? Uh-huh. The story is the story of a, of a single mother who works late and long hours and uh, her family, who is a 14-year-old son who has, who has a few, I guess, a small run-ins with the law. And she has another daughter who is a three-year-old it takes place in the town that's home to the family, and it's a black family. I was really trying to depict uh, the life of, uh, of a single mother who works in a place like Walmart. Um, um, and, um, you know, I, I, I would go to Walmart now and then, late or often, and uh, I will see these, often these cashiers and these women that will uh, be working there until very late. Um, well, so late because Walmart doesn't close, so they have night shifts, morning shifts, you know, long hours. And I was asking, um, you know, that was one of the, I guess, uh, inspirations or desires of, of trying to tell this story. And, um, and you know, in where I live, the majority of, 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 of the characters were African-American. Um, and that started, uh, you know, discovery. I was, you know, as a, as a foreigner, uh, perhaps I was, I was cautious, but, uh, but, um, I think making a film always off- offers you the possibility to discover and to understand and to learn. I understand that you cast the film locally. That is correct. For me, there, there was really no, not, no, no other possibility um, because perhaps then all the other uh, uh, you know, answers to your questions would be a little bit different. Uh, I wanted to understand this reality, this place, this, this, this town. And uh, because of that, I had to you know, ask the people that live there, ask the schools, the judicial district, you know, but make everything very deep but very close to. I was looking at this part of the country, you know, this, uh, this city, this uh, place. The style of your film, if not all your filmmaking, is described as modern neorealism. And I'd love to have you talk about what that means for you as a filmmaker, to be a mm-hmm. neorealist. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, um, well, um, while I was developing this film... I don't, know, I don't know if it, before I started writing the film, I, I had an article in my desk for a long time of one of the pioneers of neorealism, which is a, 
a screenwriter named Cesare Salatini, and 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 he in this very brief article is even a you know a, a one paragraph a statement where he argues that uh, you know reality should be enough. That in a way he was uh, he, he was uh, um, in a way warning um, uh, future filmmakers or you know future neorealist of some of his contemporaries in a way of the danger of the plot, the danger of, you know, making reality, you know, twisting reality for a dramatic purpose that just looking at the reality should be enough drama. That's all you need. Uh, of course, you know, he wasn't faithful always to this, uh, to this clause, or maybe that's, this is an ideal. What I find very inspiring and very like a, a light that uh, I want to follow is this idea of embracing life, embracing uh, life unfolding, reality unfolding. It's more importantly this idea of uh, of trying to avoid drama and trying to, you know, the drama will come by itself. But just look and you will find it. Oh, that's beautiful. I love that. (laughs) (laughs) Good morning. This is Fresh Art International on Jolt Radio. We're streaming live from Miami, Florida. I'm Kathy Bird, and we are nearing the end of our show, but we just have to share with you two soundtracks involving closely artists. The first you're going to hear is called No A Flamenco Tale by Jose Luis Tirado. He's an artist and filmmaker born in Seville, Spain, and this film takes place in Sevilla. It's a fictional musical film, an urban contemporary flamenco opera in which all the action in the film is expressed through dance, and there's an original text that's narrated through song. This is Kathy Bird, and I hope you enjoyed that soundtrack from No, A Flamenco Tale. And the last little bit of this film festival, the GEMS Film Festival, presented by the Miami Film Festival, is Agnes Varda. She was born in Belgium, 
and she studied art history and photography in Paris. And her film that is iconic for me is Cleo from 5 to 7 from 1962. She's made many films since. But the latest one is super fun. And I know thinking of our location in Miami where there's a lot of murals created by artists, that her newest documentary is created with a French street artist known as J.R. And they get on J.R.'s photo truck. It's painted to resemble a big camera. And they travel from village to village and they meet locals and create these giant portraits of them, which they wheat paste onto buildings throughout the towns. It's a super fun experience. And here's what it sounds like. Faces, places. Moi, je n'ai pas oublié les images de tes films. Le visage de Cléo. J'ai adoré voir depuis le train les yeux que tu as collés sur des containers. Ce qui est drôle, c'est qu'on ne se soit pas croisé depuis le temps. Le truc rigolo, c'est qu'on va faire un film ensemble. Bah ouais, c'est ça le point de départ. Mais qu'est-ce qu'on va faire Bien, On va faire des images ensemble, mais autrement. Tu sais, c'est avec ce camion que je pars partout dans le monde. Les gens y entrent à l'arrière, comme dans un photomaton, et la photo sort dans les 5 secondes sur le côté, en grand format. C'est ça, on apprend à se connaître. Merci d'être venu. Je dis bonjour qu'aux qu jeunes. Bah oui, parce qu'ils sont à ta taille. <rire> Chaque visage a une histoire. Je sais pas quoi dire. Déjà, je pensais pas que l'image serait aussi grande. C'est vraiment l'idée que j'y réponds à ce que je souhaite le plus. Les visages que je rencontre, oh les photographies, pour qu'ils ne tombent pas aussitôt dans les trous de ma mémoire. Alors, ce que je te propose, c'est que je t'aide à emmagasiner le plus d'images avant que tout foutre le camp. Ça, c'est très bien imprimé sur des petites assiettes de porcelaine. C'est beau, hein C'est le jeu. <rire> Ce train ira dans plus d'endroits où tu n'iras jamais. Good morning. This is Fresh Art International, and you were just listening to the soundtrack from Faces Places that will be playing shortly at the Miami Film Festival Fall Series that they've given the title Gems. We're live streaming on Jolt Radio in Miami, and this morning in our studio, I was lucky to have Diana Caravid. Thank you very much for having us. It's been great. It's been really fun. And Joshua Jean-Baptiste. It's been real. I've had a lot of great time. It has. I've had and a lot of great time. We'll be <laughs> looking forward to hearing more from both of them in our future shows. And I want you to know that listeners, you can go online to find out more about Fresh Art International and how to support this Art Talk radio show on freshartinternational.com. For the Miami Film Festival, you can go to... MiamiFilmFestival.com Okay. <laughs> and we hope you'll go there, find out more about what's happening in the next few days. It's the 12th through the 15th. Yeah, from tomorrow until Sunday. That's right. And if you like what you're hearing this morning, please let us know at Fresh Art INTL or Jolt Radio. You'll find more than 100 Fresh Art experiences anywhere you go for podcasts. Thank you for listening. Stay tuned. 
Join us every week for Contemporary Art Talk.